Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Welcome everyone again to another of our sessions of uh, interviews with the uh, experts. I'm Malcolm Bell, Vice Chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine uh, here at Mayo Clinic uh, Rochester. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jörg Herman, who is a professor of medicine. He's also director of our cardio-oncology clinic, and he has a particular interest and certainly expertise in the management of cardio-oncology issues. Today, we're here to discuss anthracycline cardiotoxicity. So welcome, Jörg. Thank you so much, Dr. Bell. Excited to be here and to chat about this topic, which I think is still important. So maybe just to start off with why we're even discussing this, certainly looking from the outside in, there appear to have been remarkable developments in cancer therapeutics over the last 10, 20 years. Is it surprising that we're still using agent, you know, anthracycline agents uh, since we've known about uh, cardiotoxicity in these for many, many decades? Maybe we'll just start off with uh, just asking you, is this surprising? And if not, um, why are we uh, uh, still using these agents? Why they must be you know, very effective in a number of uh, cancers. Yeah, indeed. I mean, a very good question. I mean, one could ask or, or, or say in response, I mean, are we still using penicillins? I mean, we, we do. We've had other antibiotics coming along and we're still using the penicillins because they're so effective. And um, the same holds true for anthracyclines. Now, adriamycin, um, that's one of the names for it, right? So, I mean, doxorubicin adriamycin comes from the Adriatic Sea. That was in Italy, where it was serendipitously discovered, the whole class, in fact. And that was in the 60s. Um, so that, that gives their perspective. I mean, how many decades? Over half a century. And then the efficacy that really drove their use, it's just there. It's one of the best, I mean, cancer therapeutics out there. It's just that toxicity that you allude to, particularly the cardiotoxicity that was soon found to be dose limiting. Um, So you see, if you give, I mean, they gave doses up to a thousand milligrams per meter square, unheard of. It's sort of like smoking in the beginning, right? People were smoking left and right, and then they realized that there could be some side effects of that similar to the intracyclines. And it was um, heart failure, refractory heart failure that could even develop early on with those kind of doses. But the use has declined, particularly in breast cancer. So when we look at the breast cancer population, they don't receive a high dose to begin with. And then a lot of efforts being made um, to use less and less. But this being said, there still is a population of breast cancer patients for which this is still the best therapy or the most efficacious in terms of cancer outcomes. And then um, hematological malignancies, leukemias, and particularly lymphomas. I mean, there we have really, I mean, strong data that when we look at diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, for instance, ARDSHOP is the abbreviation for what they're using, that those components, if you use all of these, that's really the best outcome uh, yield in terms of lymphoma. And then sarcoma, that's the group that receives really the highest dose spectrum. But again, I mean, it's an essential essential component there. And so efforts have been there to reduce the use of intracyclines. But the bottom line is it's still a very efficacious drug to use and is here to stay. 
And is there typically a, um, a strategy to decrease the dose? I mean, compared to the historical doses and presumably with other agents that used in conjunction, you're also you're very effective. So by decreasing the dose, you have not necessarily decreased its effectiveness. Would that be fair? Yeah, I mean, the more is better, I think is still what most uh, hematologists or oncologists feel. If they, um, they they dose reduce in some of their regimens based on com comorbidities or age, in, in large part, it's sort of substitution. I mean, just, I mean, taking it out completely and substituting it with another agent. Uh, it is It is a combination of both. I mean, there are efforts of dose reduction, but as well as substitution. So, so maybe you could just briefly tell us, I mean, who would the, be the patients that would be contraindicated for, from the get-go, presuming that there may be people with pre-existing cardiomyopathy, but maybe there's some other uh, risks that uh, we need to consider. And then what sort of strategies uh, are currently in use in terms of mitigating uh, those side effects? I and mean, again, we're just talking about the cardiotoxic uh, uh, side effects um, and uh, the surveillance that is uh, currently uh, being used. I mean, historically, you know, we're looking at you know, echocardiography uh, in, in terms of you know, following these patients, but uh, uh, are there other ways we you know, surveil these patients? Yeah, so a number of, of questions here and, and aspects um, to go through, but this is really the essence of it, right? When we look at a cancer patient who's about to get this kind of therapy, we have to look at these patients from the very beginning before they even get the first drop or infusion of, of anthracycline therapy. So it's the before, during, and after we're looking at uh, for these cancer patients. And when we go back to the pathophysiology, I've said just over a century, half a century of, of use and research in this drug, we still don't know exactly the one precise mechanism that causes cardiotoxicity. There are a couple of aspects of how this is mediated. Uh, one thing for certain is the impression that this is sort of irreversible injury. Once you, I mean, it kills off cardiomyocytes and I mean, and then, I mean, that's, that's it. And you, at the end, you, you end up with fibrosis, um, sort of replacement fibrosis and um, there have been studies showing that those patients who really have a prominent decline in LV mass are the ones, as you can imagine, with the poorest outcome. And there is maybe a little bit of a give and take. You have the loss of cardiomyocytes, and then some patients do not have the regenerative capacity to compensate for that. So I think that kind of imbalance over time is what comes out. And there are some studies looking at progenitor cells and I mean, that impairment. So a number of aspects is what I'm trying to highlight when it comes to the path of physiology and to be aware of. So going into this, I mean, it's only intuitive that those who have some pre-existing cardiovascular disease or stress on the myocardium are the ones who would be at highest risk, where any of the pathways are already stimulated, response pathways. For instance, a nice example are actually breast cancer patients who are getting trastuzumab. That's a drug, an antibody that was designed to take us away from, from the old cancer therapeutics, such as anthracyclines with, I mean, really this kind of shotgun approach, go to the targeted therapies. But what we didn't know at the time was that it would actually target the stress pathway in the myocardium that's activated in response to anthracyclines. When you combine these two, that's where you really see uh, a lot of derangements. And there are scenarios where this pathway is already stimulated myocardial ischemia or high blood pressure. High blood pressure is one of the most prominent cardiovascular risk factors. 
when it comes to cardiotoxicity. But patients who have a reduced ejection fraction cardiomyopathy to begin with are obviously already at a higher risk because the reserve is, is, is so much lower. I mean, if you already, it's the same as the exercise tolerance, if you start out at a low level and go even lower, I mean, that's not good. I mean, if you start in a high level and have the same amount of decrease, you still might come out okay at the end. So that's why 40% of an ejection fraction is commonly designated as the cutoff, which one would not really recommend any cardiotoxic medications. Now, it's a benefit risk discussion on an individual basis. Some patients, they might not have any alternative. It's sort of what do you want to die from? It's almost in, in my to a pointed way to say that, I mean, it's going to be heart failure or it's going to be the malignancy. Yeah. How can you address both? So mitigation therapies, then, um, once you've identified and there are tools out there, for instance, the Heart Failure Society of the ESC and the International Cardio-Oncology Society in combination, they have these risk performers where you come out with a checklist, a point system, and you say, I mean, you, you're low, intermediate, high, or very high risks, and then you should, I mean, manage this patient accordingly. That's what's also in the guidelines, the ESC 2022 cardio-oncology guidelines, um, that kind of approach. So if you have someone with a with a high-risk scenario, actually, the, the, the one class one indication is think of other therapies, do what we talked about before. Do you have options, substitute or reduce the dose? Or what how can you how can you do it? With anthracyclines, there are other formulations with doxorubicin, for instance, there's the liposomal formulation. The strategy here is that it would accumulate more in the tumor tissue than in the heart tissue, that it was sort of, I mean, have a, have a bypass on the myocardium. And that's been used in breast cancer patients in particular, doxil. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite extensively used. And there are good data that the incidence of cardiotoxicity is less. Another strategy, a drug, it's called dexrasozan, the Zinigard is the trade name. And that's also been used, and it's in, I mean, we know it likely as an iron chelator, or it's been used, but it also works on the on the second hypo, main leading hypothesis for intracycline cardiotoxicity, which goes to topoisomerase uh, to better inhibition. And so it works on, on these aspects, and, and there are also some good data. They initially came from the pediatric cancer population that this is very efficacious, but there are some reservations in the oncology, hematology world as they feel like a drug such as that might protect the cancer cells as much as the myocardium. So there's been that reservation. But there are these two specific strategies which are preventive. And, and then beyond that, there have been studies shown that certain beta blockers, cavetolol, mebivolol, hydrostatins, um, maybe spironolactone would be efficacious. Though this being said, there was just a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Evidence, that, that new sub-journal of the New England Journal of Medicine. And it was a study looking at that patients undergoing intracycline-based therapy have no indication for statin therapy whatsoever otherwise than just the cardioprotection. Is it efficacious? It was atorvastatin 40 milligrams, and the results were, were negative. It wasn't efficacious um, to just give statins for the purpose of cardio 
toxicity protection with anthracyclines. So those are sort of the, the, the evolving field of mitigation prevention strategies. And then if you pursue these, and even if you don't pursue these, but I mean, you should want to know, I mean, is there some cardiotoxicity developing? Because we also know the earlier you detect this and the sooner you react to this, yeah. the better the outcomes. Um, but that's another maybe a follow-up question as far as how you yeah. So, so let me interrupt you. I mean, that's I mean that's really fascinating, and it's uh, it's good to hear that there are these uh, strategies. You're using you know different agents, uh, and maybe you know slightly, slightly different uh, targets there. But let's just take a, a patient who, who's not considered high risk. You know, it could be a a, a young woman or a young man. Mm -hmm. uh, normal uh, cardiac function is being treated with uh, with these agents. And presumably, if they did develop a uh, cardiomyopathy, these strategies would then be implemented just as they would be for a high-risk patient, if, if, if I'm understanding you correctly. But what I'd really like to know is, what's the earliest you can detect this before you see a significant decrease in LV function, and particularly left ventricular ejection fraction? What type of imaging is best suited for to pick this up early? And are there biomarkers or any other markers that would uh, alert you that they're in the early stages of uh, developing cardiotoxicity so that you could put into place those mitigating strategies? Now, very good uh, question indeed. So the, the biomarkers that have been proposed, the usual culprits, right, troponins and uh, BNP, Troponin, uh, particularly useful during uh, the cancer therapy, I mean, at the time of acute injury, and then sort of their value levels off, uh, whereas BNP might be the opposite. I mean, where you see um, maybe not so much of a signal uh, early on, but later on, it, it emerges in their survivorship. And then for, I mean, the, the mainstay, though, that's been pursued is, is echocardiography and strain imaging. So abnormalities in global longitudinal strain as being the most sensitive marker. And there was a trial uh, called the SUCOR trial that looked at that. I mean, what is the, the value of reacting to early changes in strain? Now they used a, a, a relative change as, as a cutoff of just 12% relative change, which is a relatively sensitive uh, when you think about it. So you need to be, you need to have a good echo lab for once. I mean, you need to have a, I mean, a good echo lab with reliable strain imaging analyses and, um, and a good baseline assessment. And sometimes it's not so easy. Some of the breast cancer patients, for instance, after mastectomy or for some other reasons, I mean, it's not so easy to image them, but echo imaging, strain imaging has been the, the main thing. And there was... Okay. Even though the SUCA trial, when you just look at EF base versus strain imaging, there was the, the primary endpoint did not differ. There was a signal that if you detect changes earlier with strain imaging, patients tend to have a better, better outcome in terms okay. of. Just staying on imaging, what, what about is there a role for um, cardiac MRI? And then, you know, particularly uh, in patients you know, who echo may be uh, physically uh, you know, uncomfortable for them. Sure, that's been also looked at in cardiac MRI and the same. You can also do some strain assessment on cardiac MRI and get, I mean, the same information. And in general, these more sensitive markers do indicate change a couple months earlier before you see it in the EF. Although critics um, have said, and I might consider myself as a critic, sometimes you can already see the writing on the wall, even if just looking at the EF change. It okay. might not reach significance when you because of a higher uh, standard deviation, but... 
Um, the, I mean, it's already, the message is already there. Okay. But there's no other signals that you might see in cardiac MRR just in terms of attenuation that uh, would no. you know, tip you off that this was uh, in the early stages. So with a patient you know, uh, you know, who develops uh, you know, uh, signs of cardiotoxicity, you talked about mitigating uh, strategies. Let's assume that they finish their uh, you know, chemotherapy uh, regimen, at, at least your first time round, but they're left with LV dysfunction. Uh, presumably, that's going to be treated in the same way as we would treat any uh, patient with significant left ventricular dysfunction you know, in terms of medical therapy. Is it reversible? Is the expectation that this might uh, uh, improve in the future? What, what can you tell us about that just in our closing uh, minute or so? Yeah, no, that, that's very important. I mean, a lot of attention has been paid to the before and during, but then the after and how you deal with these patients and the assumption has been, yeah, we're, why don't we just give standard heart failure or cardiomyopathy therapy, beta blockers and ACE inhibitors. But the, the, the important aspect is, and, and to highlight that only 10%, 11% was the actual figure, really have a complete recovery in their ejection fraction. That's not a whole lot, right? 90% only partial recovery, and then maybe even 20% there's no recovery in response to these standard drugs. And it takes a long time. It almost takes a year for them to, to, to come back over the 50% mark. So the standard therapies, I mean, while they're applied, may not be, be the best solution. It's what we've always had. So here at Mayo, because in, in our translational and multidisciplinary approach with basic scientists, clinicians, we've worked in this and looked at this and Dr. Shu, who's one of our, of our basic scientists, I mean, he has a lot of experience with zebrafish. He, he did a very fascinating work and catalog um, after an initial signal was, was found related to the mTOR pathway in autophagy, looking at drugs that are already out there and have them autophagy activating effects and could be repurposed. So FDA approved autophagy activating drugs that could be repurposed. And there were two main hits, and those were actually pravastatin and spironolactone. So those were the two. that, and, and we tested that then in a mouse model. And these two work better than carvedilol and lisinopril, um, which only showed some, some mild benefit. So there might be something to this and, and, and points to the direction. Again, here at Mayo Clinic, we have a key interest in this biomedical discovery and bringing the bench to the bedside. I mean, right? I mean, the come from a pathophysiological understanding is what the mechanisms are. To, I mean, addressing them in this way with novel therapies improve the outcome of patients. So there is something new on the horizon, I would say, and it's very much needed. It's it's sort of the afterthought. So I think it's fair to say then that um, I mean these efforts are really going to be very important and obviously worth it for drugs that are very very effective in treating uh, cancer uh, patients, and I think also uh, as you began to stress, you're having a very good uh, echocardiography uh, uh, lab and the collaboration between the oncologists and cardiologists such as yourself, you know, in a specialized clinic of uh, cardio-oncology is really important uh, to really avoid your complications and so that and, and treat them if they arise and very important you know in terms of those you know mitigating strategies so that those patients really can get the very best uh, treatment for their cancer uh, i don't know if you have any other uh, closing words but i i think there's been a lot of information shared here it's really fascinating and uh, and obviously uh, these drugs are going to be around for for a lot longer um, and hopefully we can uh, decrease the risk of toxicity and treat these patients appropriately 
No, yeah, thank you so much. Couldn't be summarized any better. Dr. Herman, th thank you so much uh, you know, again for sharing your experience and expertise in, in this area. And thanks for everyone uh, for, for joining us today. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.